Listen to God's word from Psalm 69. To the chief musician, set to the lilies, a psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I've come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. I become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me. I am a song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood waters overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. Let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck, and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living, and not be, not be written with the righteous. 
but I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This week in our vacation Bible school, we had a theme that we called uh, Following the Clues, kind of like a little bit of a detective story, finding different things along the way that will lead us to certain conclusions. And in this psalm, there are certain clues about Jesus Christ, but they're more than clues. They are the prophetic word of God that is foretelling the coming of the Messiah. And this is one of those psalms that is clearly messianic. Now, we believe all of the psalms are connected to our Savior and to that great overarching story of redemption. And so you can see Jesus and see that plan of redemption throughout all of the pages of Scripture. But some psalms are more clearly messianic, and this is one of them. It stands with Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 23 as ones that, that uh, clearly speak of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And while David wrote about his own suffering that he was going through, he also foreshadowed Jesus Christ and his experience and then led by the Holy Spirit, he foretold the coming of the Lord Jesus, the one that the prophet Isaiah would call the suffering servant. And then by that same spirit, the New Testament authors quote from Psalm 69. And they say, this is what Psalm 69 was talking about. This is what David was referring to. In fact, Jesus himself said, this happened so the words that were written would be fulfilled because they speak about him. Because of that, I want to meditate on Psalm 69 today and do more than meditate. I'll be preaching from this psalm. And my method today is I want to help you to see how the New Testament interprets and applies Psalm 69 to Jesus. So I'll be looking in a sense, through the lens very specifically of those quotations from the New Testament back to the Old. You can see that on the outline. I've listed those quotations. There are seven in Psalm 69 in direct re reference to Jesus Christ. But you also probably heard other allusions to the redemptive work uh, that God has done for us, the deliverance and rescue that he has, has given. So all be going towards this purpose that Jesus is the suffering servant and is also the righteous judge. Therefore, cast yourself on his mercy. The suffering servant is also the righteous judge. Cast yourself on his mercy. 
We'll begin with verse 9 from Psalm 69, which is quoted in John 2, 17. Zeal for God's house. Zeal for God's house has consumed me. This is perhaps the the best-known messianic verse. Jesus' disciples applied it to him in the occasion when he cleansed the temple. Let's think about that a little bit. When the Passover was being celebrated, Jesus went up to the temple to worship and to, to be there for this great feast of deliverance. When he got there, he found that the Lord's house was full of animals, was full of merchants, was full of money changers or bankers. And Jesus was righteously upset about this. God had given the temple to be a house of meeting, a house of worship and prayer for all people. But the Jews in Jesus' day had turned it into a place of, uh, of commerce. It was almost like a stockyard because of all of the animals. Or maybe a little bit like a Walmart because of the commerce that was going on. It's not the place that God had intended it to be. And Jesus made a whip out of cords And he went through the temple, and he drove out all of the animals. And he turned over the tables of those doing business and scattered the money of the bankers. And he drove them all out, and he said this, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's Psalm 69. But why was it that Jesus was so concerned? Let me give you two reasons. I already alluded to this. The temple of God was was his house. Jesus calls it my father's house. And it was a place that the Lord had intended to be a beacon of light and of salvation. It was a place where, where Almighty God dwelt amongst his people, and he made a way for sinners to come into his presence. And that way, way was through the sacrifice of the, uh, of, the, of the lambs and of the bulls, the significance of the shed blood that must be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That was foreshadowing in the Old Testament coming of the one perfect sacrifice, the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, day after day, week after week, year after year, there was an animal that was killed and burned on the altar. And more than one, over and over again, thousands, millions of animals that would have been sacrificed through the years. And that was a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but the tabernacle and then the temple itself were a picture of Jesus. Because it is through Jesus, not the temple, that salvation comes. 
And Jesus recognized this, and I read this in John chapter 2. Jesus said, tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it again. See, the Jews were upset with what he had done. On his authority as the Son of God, he cleansed the temple. And they said, by what authority, what, what sign do you do this for? And he gave this sign, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they were flabbergasted by this. They had no idea what he was talking about. It took 46 years to build it. And you think you can build it in three days? Ha! Ah. Jesus was referring about his body. He was referring to what he would do on the cross. That he would lay his life down for you, for me. And the Jews desecrated the temple in this way. They filled it with the animals and the money changers. They were desecrating Jesus himself. They were desecrating the worship of our holy God that is made possible only through the body and blood of our Savior. And Jesus longed for this reality of worship, the reality that would be brought to us when he did suffer on the cross and die and rise again on the third day. This is why he came. Jesus longed for this worship. Jesus longed for this salvation that was, uh, was put on display by the temple worship. And that provides something of a guide for us today, a longing for the worship of God where our salvation is proclaimed and celebrated. That's what coming to church is about. It's all about Jesus. It's all about thanking God for your salvation. It's all about hearing once again that your sins are forgiven because Jesus has died and rose again for you. And there are lots of things that can distract you from that. The buzz of the busyness of this life just follows us into the sanctuary, doesn't it? It may be that even now that you're thinking about what you have to do this week. The buzz of your cell phone may distract you. Perhaps it's in your hand right now and, you're, uh, and your thumb is kind of scrolling along. Perhaps the busyness of anxiety, the cares of this world, the thorns that rise up to seek to choke out the faith that is God's gift to you. Perhaps there's conflict in your life, whatever that conflict may be, that distracts you and you've come to this worship, you've come to church and your mind is scattered about all of these different things. But Jesus had a zeal for the worship of God that proclaims his salvation. And his single-minded focus is something that blesses us and is an example to us. And I would urge you to cultivate that single-minded focus about worship, a 
a focus on coming to worship the living God who has loved you and saved you from your sins through Jesus Christ. Zeal for God's house has consumed Christ. May it draw you in to that joy in the worship of the Lord. Well, David's zeal and Jesus' zeal for the worship of God got them in trouble. Which leads us to the second verse that I would call your attention to. Verse 4 that I will entitle, Suffering Without Cause. It's quoted in John 15, 25. The psalm begins with with the words of the suffering servant. You can hear it in verses 1 through 4. And David speaks of what he went through, and it traces on throughout the rest of, uh, of, the, of the psalm as well. He describes how he was expressing his devotion to the Lord. He fasted, and what did he get in return? Well, they, they ridiculed him for his devotion to the Lord. He expressed his own grief over his sin, and he put on, on sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning, over his own sinfulness before the Lord, a personal reflection and devotion to the Lord. And what did he get in return? There were people who laughed at him and scorned him because of that. And they would heap up their reviling on him. That was David. And as I've said, David foreshadows Jesus Christ and foretells of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus underwent suffering much more than David or any human being could ever imagine. Because he bore your sins on the cross. This makes several vital points about our Redeemer. One that I will call your attention to here and not develop much. You can meditate on this. It it makes a vital point that our Redeemer Jesus is fully man that he has a true body and a soul just like you and I do. Makes the point that our Redeemer Jesus did indeed suffer for us. That's brought home when John quotes verse 4. This is part of Jesus' teaching. He, he, uh, uh, as he grew weary on the cross and as he suffered, excuse me, it's verse 21, not verse 4. Verse 21, quoted by John in chapter 9, 28, when Jesus suffered on the cross and he grew thirsty, they gave him vinegar to drink, an allusion back again to Psalm 69. And later, the apostle John quotes in in Revelation 11 about being clothed in sackcloth, again, that sign of grief and humiliation that the witnesses of Jesus Christ bear in the, in the book of Revelation. And Jesus did indeed suffer for us, for our salvation. But there's more. Jesus suffered without cause. He did no wrong. He suffered because of his zeal for God. And like David, Jesus' enemies slandered him. They worked against him secretly and accused him to his face. They brought up false accusations against him. They made him out to be unhinged from reality, over the top in his devotion. 
The Pharisees said, said as much and more when they accused him of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. But Jesus was no fanatic, was he? He was genuinely the Messiah. And he showed that over and over again, and he exercised his right as the only begotten Son of God by cleansing the temple. When the, his disciples saw this, they understood that this is the Christ. And that zeal did lead to opposition. I want you to hear how Jesus himself quotes from Psalm 69 and John 15. Here, he is warning his disciples that the, the world who hates him would also hate the disciples and the church that would follow after Jesus Christ. They will hate the church because they hated him first, are his words. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then later, but this happened so that the word might be fulfilled which is written in the law, in their law, they hated me without a cause. You see, Jesus is reaching back to Psalm 69 and saying, this is what David foresaw. This is what David foretold, that the Messiah would come into the world, but the world would not receive him. He would come to his own people, but his own people would reject him that he would live a sinless life, but he would then face false accusations and be led to the cross so that by his stripes we would be healed. This happened so that these words might be fulfilled. We've been considering something of this principle through Peter's letter to a persecuted church. I'll remind you just briefly of that. Through faith, you are united to your Savior, Jesus Christ. You are united in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection. We can learn from David here, who suffered without cause, because in David's suffering, it prompted him to confess his foolishness, to confess his sins. And even though he didn't deserve to suffer in, in these cases... God was providentially using them to purify him. It's the language of 1 Peter. To purify him from his sins like gold is purified in a fire. And we can learn from that that when suffering comes, that we may humble ourselves before God. We can also learn from Christ who suffered unjustly for us. Now, Jesus is different from David in this case. Jesus did no sin. David is led to confess, but Jesus was sinless. But he became the bearer of our sins. He became sin for us. That's the way Paul describes it. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As we apply that to our lives, you can see how Jesus' suffering gives meaning and guidance to your suffering. You don't have to look far today to know that the world is 
in opposition to Jesus and in opposition to the Bible and to the church. You already see ways that they portray Christians as deranged zealots, trying to marginalize the church and the teachings of Jesus. What we understand to be simple devotion and heartfelt desire to worship God, the world describes as unhinged and zealots and fanatics. So don't be surprised. And don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Christ has gone before you. Follow him in loving God and being zealous for his worship. Following him in following his Father. Knowing that he has indeed gone before us and suffered for us. Leads us to a third quote from the New Testament of Psalm 69. This comes in verse 9. This is the second half of verse 9. Paul quotes this in Romans 15.3, where he teaches us to bear with, other, with one another rather than seeking to please ourselves. I'm titling this section Selfish, Selflessness rather than Selfishness. Here Paul says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, there's Psalm 69, reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, this may seem to be a little out of the, uh, out of the flow of things, of the suffering servant becoming the righteous judge. But it actually fits very well when you come to realize that when you know that Jesus laid down his life for you, then that enables you to walk on a very different path than what you, what you were walking in before. Rather than doing all of the things to please yourself, Psalm 69, and Paul here in Romans 15 says that you should deliberately pursue a path of selflessness, especially in the midst of suffering. <clears throat> you see, the, the tendency in suffering is for the horizon of your life to narrow down to what you are going through. That's all you can see. And all you can see is the injustice that is against you and the harm that has been done to you and the suffering that you're going through. And you begin to interpret the world through that lens and really to interpret it through the lens of yourself. That begins then to get worked out in your relationship with all of those around you. And... What Paul does is to say that in Christ, you may see something more than the suffering you're going through. That horizon that has shrunk is expanded to see Jesus, who is an example for us. Christ himself did not please 
his own desires. Rather, let the reproaches fall on him. Well, just imagine if Jesus had not done that. What if Jesus, when he was falsely accused, when he was arrested without a cause, when he was spit on, when the soldiers mocked him by putting a crown of thorns on his head, and then whipped him mercilessly, what if Jesus had said, that's it? I don't deserve this. Walked away. Praise God he did not. For the joy of what was before him, he endured all of this. He selflessly laid down his life. There's a redemptive aspect to that that frees you and helps you to understand the suffering that you are going through. And there is an example that uh, that we follow. And in that example, I would urge you, in your suffering, to recognize your relationship to Jesus Christ. And in your suffering, be aware of how how. Our sins will narrow down upon ourselves and we can lash out at those around us and make a decided uh, effort, make a decided posture of instead of seeing yourself, of seeing Christ in the midst of your suffering and then seeing those around you as those who are also redeemed from their sins just like you are. This will... Foster an attitude of humility, selflessness, instead of selfishness. Finally, the fourth set of verses I'll call your attention to come in verses 22 through 28. This passage is quoted from three times in the New Testament. Just call your attention briefly to these. Verse 25 is quoted by the disciples in Acts 1.20. This is the judgment that falls upon Judas Iscariot, the traitor who betrayed Jesus. This is a prayer of judgment upon one who rejected Jesus. In verses 22 through 23, Paul quotes in Romans 11. This is a passage of judgment as well. A judgment which fell on the children of Israel who rejected the Messiah, who crucified him. It was a prayer of judgment against God's enemies. And then maybe the most shocking prayer is the prayer of David in verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, speaking of the enemies. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written in written with the righteous. Jesus alludes to this in Luke 10, 20. He guides his disciples to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. The allusion there is 
the opposite, those whose names are not written in the book of life. These are are heavy verses and are often neglected because they make us uncomfortable. There are prayers that the Lord would defeat and destroy his enemies. But David and the New Testament's use of these verses will help orient you to see that these are not prayers that are taken up because of personal uh, revenge that is being sought. They're not taken up to get even with anyone. Instead, what, what David does is to align himself with Jesus and to be under his sovereign rule as a great king and a righteous judge. And he appeals to Almighty God, he appeals to the coming judge of all the earth to judge rightly. And it is right for a holy God to destroy all of his enemies. The doctrine of hell makes us uncomfortable because it is horrifying to think of being judged and in torment forever and ever. It ought to be horrifying, but it is a teaching of the Bible. And it is right for God, who is completely righteous, completely without sin, to judge forever and ever those who reject him. So David aligned himself with that. And we follow his example in aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ and with his kingdom. We align ourselves with him knowing that the Lord is ruling over all things. Jesus Christ has ascended on high, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father, almighty, ruling over all things, bringing all things underneath his feet, and he says that he will come again. And when he comes, all mankind will be gathered before his great white throne of judgment. And there Jesus, the righteous judge, will separate the sheep from the goats. He will separate those who have repented and have asked Jesus to be their Savior from those who have rejected them, rejected him, spurned his offer of the gospel, and have gone on in their lives without any repentance whatsoever. On that day, the books will be open, and when Jesus separates, For those of you who are trusting in Christ, you will be received into the presence of the Lord forever and ever. But you need to be warned by this passage that if you do not repent, that your name is blotted out of the book of the living, you will never enter into the place of righteousness. Now is the time to flee to Christ, who loves his church and gave himself for for her. Even though you have reviled him,
previously in your life, even though you have walked in disobedience, the time is still open for you to repent. There is still time for you to turn away from your own self-righteousness and to throw yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. For he will show mercy to all who come to him in faith. I pray that you would take to heart then Psalm 69, that you would see the suffering servant who came to seek and to save that which was lost. But you would also see that that suffering servant is now also the righteous judge. I pray that you would cast yourself on his mercy, that you would lift up your prayers to him who rules over all things. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered on our behalf. And we pray to you, the righteous judge, that you would forgive our sins for that blood of Jesus Christ, and that you would also judge rightly. God, it is, uh, it is true that we are frightened of these, of these doctrines of judgment and of hell, they are an expression of your righteous holiness. So we take them up because you are holy and righteous and good. We rejoice in all of your judgments and asking that you would save us from our own sins. You would give us that message of reconciliation to carry to the world as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Close by singing the last portion of Psalm 69. And in this you can hear uh, the suffering of the saints, suffering of our Savior, but also the joy of salvation that is given to us. We sing this as a prayer and a profession of faith. Stanza 13 says, For this will please the Lord far more than will the offerings of bulls or of ox." That offering is the offering of Jesus for us. Stand and sing Psalm 69D.